You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 16 We found my lady with no light in the room but the reading lamp. The shade was screwed down so as to overshadow her face. Instead of looking up at us in her usual straightforward way, she sat close at the table and kept her eyes fixed obstinately on an open book. Officer, she said, is it important to the inquiry you are conducting to know beforehand if any person now in this house wishes to leave it? Most important, my lady. I have to tell you, then, that Miss Verinder proposes going to stay with her aunt, Mrs. Abelwhite of Frizzing Hall. She has arranged to leave us the first thing tomorrow morning. Sergeant Cuff looked at me. I made a step forward to speak to my mistress, and, feeling my heart fail me, if I must own it, took a step back again and said nothing. May I ask your ladyship when Miss Verinder informed you that she was going to her aunt's, inquired the sergeant. About an hour since, answered my mistress. Sergeant Cuff looked at me once more. They say old people's hearts are not very easily moved. My heart couldn't have thumped much harder than it did now if I had been five and twenty again. I have no claim, my lady, says the sergeant, to control Miss Verinder's actions. All I can ask you to do is to put off her departure, if possible, till later in the day. I must go to Frizzing Hall myself tomorrow morning, and I shall be back by two o'clock, if not before. If Miss Verinder can be kept here till that time, I should wish to say two words to her unexpectedly before she goes. My lady directed me to give the coachman her orders that the carriage was not to come for Miss Rachel until two o'clock. Have you more to say? she asked of the sergeant when this had been done. Only one thing, your ladyship. If Miss Verinder is surprised at this change in the arrangements, please not to mention me as being the cause of putting off her journey. My mistress lifted her head suddenly from her book as if she was going to say something, checked herself by a great effort, and looking back again at the open page, dismissed us with a sign of her hand. "'That's a wonderful woman,' said Sergeant Cuff, when we were out in the hall again. "'But for her self-control, the mystery that puzzles you, Mr. Betteridge, would have been at an end tonight.' At those words the truth rushed at last into my stupid old head. For the moment, I suppose, I must have gone clean out of my senses.' I seized the sergeant by the collar of his coat and pinned him against the wall. "'Damn you!' I cried out. "'There's something wrong about Miss Rachel, and you've been hiding it from me all this time.' Sergeant Cuff looked up at me flat against the wall without stirring a hand or moving a muscle of his melancholy face. "'Ah,' he said, "'you've guessed it at last.' My hand dropped from his collar and my head sunk on my breast." Please to remember, as some excuse for my breaking out as I did, that I had served the family for fifty years. 
Miss Rachel had climbed upon my knees and pulled my whiskers many and many a time when she was a child. Miss Rachel, with all her faults, had been, to my mind, the dearest and prettiest and best young mistress that ever an old servant waited on and loved. I beg Sergeant Cuff's pardon, but I am afraid I did it with watery eyes and not in a very becoming way. "'Don't distress yourself, Mr. Betteridge,' says the sergeant, "'with more kindness than I had any right to expect from him. "'In my line of life, if we were quick at taking offence, "'we shouldn't be worth salt to our porridge. "'If it's any comfort to you, collar me again. "'You don't in the least know how to do it, "'but I'll overlook your awkwardness in consideration of your feelings.' He curled up at the corners of his lips, and in his own dreary way seemed to think he had delivered himself of a very good joke. I led him into my own little sitting-room and closed the door. "'Tell me the truth, Sergeant,' I said. "'What do you suspect? It's no kindness to hide it from me now.' "'I don't suspect,' said Sergeant Cuff. "'I know.' My unlucky temper began to get the better of me again. "'Do you mean to tell me in plain English,' I said, "'that Miss Rachel has stolen her own diamond?' "'Yes,' says the sergeant. "'That is what I mean to tell you in so many words. "'Miss Verinder has been in secret possession of the Moonstone "'from first to last, "'and she has taken Rosanna Spearman into her confidence "'because she has calculated on our suspecting Rosanna Spearman of the theft. "'There is the whole case in a nutshell.' "'Collar me again, Mr. Betteridge. "'If it's any vent to your feelings, collar me again. "'God help me. "'My feelings were not to be relieved in that way. "'Give me your reasons.' "'That was all I could say to him. "'You shall hear my reasons tomorrow,' said the sergeant. "'If Miss Verinder refuses to put off her visit to her aunt, "'which you will find Miss Verinder will do, "'I shall be obliged to lay the whole case before your mistress tomorrow, "'and—' "'as I don't know what may come of it, "'I shall request you to be present "'and to hear what passes on both sides. "'Let the matter rest for tonight. "'No, Mr. Betteridge, "'you don't get a word more "'on the subject of the moonstone out of me. "'There is your table spread for supper. "'That's one of the many human infirmities "'which I always treat tenderly. "'If you will ring the bell, "'I'll say grace for what we're going to receive.' "'I wish you a good appetite to it, Sergeant,' I said, "'My appetite is gone. "'I'll wait and see you served, "'and then I'll ask you to excuse me "'if I go away and try to get the better of this by myself. "'I saw him served with the best of everything, "'and I shouldn't have been sorry "'if the best of everything had choked him. "'The head gardener, Mr. Begbie, "'came in at the same time with his weekly account. "'The sergeant got on the subject of roses "'and the merits of grass walks and gravel walks immediately.' I left the two together and went out with a heavy heart. This was the first trouble I remember for many a long year, which wasn't to be blown off by a whiff of tobacco, and which was even beyond the reach of Robinson Crusoe. Being restless and miserable and having no particular room to go to, I took a turn on the terrace and thought it over in peace and quietness by myself. It doesn't much matter what my thoughts were, I felt wretchedly old and worn out and unfit for my place, and began to wonder, for the first time in my life, when it would please God to take me. With all this I held firm, notwithstanding, to my belief in Miss Rachel. 
If Sergeant Cuff had been Solomon in all his glory and had told me that my young lady had mixed herself up in a mean and guilty plot, I should have had but one answer for Solomon, wise as he was. You don't know her, and I do. My meditations were interrupted by Samuel. He brought me a written message from my mistress. Going into the house to get a light to read it by, Samuel remarked that there seemed a change coming in the weather. My troubled mind had prevented me from noticing it before. But now my attention was roused. I heard the dogs uneasy and the wind moaning low. Looking up at the sky, I saw the rack of clouds getting blacker and blacker and hurrying faster and faster over a watery moon. Wild weather coming. Samuel was right. Wild weather coming. The message from my lady informed me that the magistrate at Frizzing Hall had written to remind her about the three Indians. Early in the coming week, the rogues must needs be released and left free to follow their own devices. If we had had any more questions to ask them, there was no time to lose. Having forgotten to mention this when she had last seen Sergeant Cuff, my mistress now desired me to supply the omission. The Indians had gone clean out of my head, as they have, no doubt, gone clean out of yours. I didn't see much use in stirring that subject again. However, I obeyed my orders on the spot as a matter of course. I found Sergeant Cuff and the gardener with a bottle of Scotch whiskey between them, head over ears, in an argument on the growing of roses. The sergeant was so deeply interested that he held up his hand and signed to me not to interrupt the discussion when I came in. As far as I could understand it, the question between them was whether the white moss rose did or did not require to be budded on the dog rose to make it grow well. Mr. Begbie said yes, and Sergeant Cuff said no. They appealed to me as hotly as a couple of boys. Knowing nothing whatever about the growing of roses, I steered a middle course, just as Her Majesty's judges do when the scales of justice bother them by hanging even to a hair. "'Gentlemen,' I remarked, "'there is much to be said on both sides. "'In the temporary lull produced by that impartial sentence, "'I laid my lady's written message on the table "'under the eyes of Sergeant Cuff. "'I had got by this time, as nearly as might be, "'to hate the sergeant. "'But truth compels me to acknowledge that, "'in respect of readiness of mind, "'he was a wonderful man. "'In half a minute after he had read the message,' He had looked back into his memory for Superintendent Seagrave's report, had picked out that part of it in which the Indians were concerned, and was ready with his answer. A certain great traveller, who understood the Indians and their language, had figured in Mr. Seagrave's report, hadn't he? Very well. Did I know the gentleman's name and address? Very well again. Would I write them on the back of my lady's message? Much obliged to me. Sergeant Cuff would look that gentleman up when he went to Frizzing Hall in the morning. "'Do you expect anything to come of it?' I asked. Superintendent Seagrave found the Indians as innocent as the babe unborn. "'Superintendent Seagrave has been proved wrong up to this time in all his conclusions,' answered the sergeant. "'It may be worthwhile to find out tomorrow whether Superintendent Seagrave was wrong about the Indians as well.' With that, he turned to Mr. Begbie and took up the argument again exactly at the place where it had left off. 
this question between us is a question of soils and seasons and patience and pains, Mr. Gardiner. Now, let me put it to you from another point of view. Do you take your white moss rose? By that time, I'd closed the door on them and was out of hearing of the rest of the dispute. In the passage, I met Penelope hanging about and asked what she was waiting for. She was waiting for her young lady's bell when her young lady chose to call her back to go on with the packing for the next day's journey. Further inquiry revealed to me that Miss Rachel had given it as a reason for wanting to go to her aunt at Frizzing Hall, that the house was unendurable to her, and that she could bear the odious presence of a policeman under the same roof with herself no longer. On being informed half an hour since that her departure would be delayed till two in the afternoon, she had flown into a violent passion. My lady, present at the time, had severely rebuked her, and then, having apparently something to say, which was reserved for her daughter's private ear, had sent Penelope out of the room. My girl was in wretchedly low spirits about the changed state of things in the house. Nothing goes right, father. Nothing is like what it used to be. I feel as if some dreadful misfortune was hanging over us all. That was my feeling, too, but I put a good face on it before my daughter. Miss Rachel's bell rang while we were talking. Penelope ran up the back stairs to go on with the packing. I went by the other way to the hall to see what the glass said about the change in the weather. Just as I approached the swing door leading into the hall from the servants' offices, it was violently opened from the other side, and Rosanna Spearman ran by me with a miserable look of pain in her face, and one of her hands pressed hard over her heart, as if the pang was in that quarter. "'What's the matter, my girl?' I asked, stopping her. "'Are you ill?' "'For God's sake, don't speak to me,' she answered, and twisted herself out of my hands, and ran on towards the servant's staircase. I called to the cook, who was within hearing, to look after the poor girl. Two other persons proved to be within hearing as well as the cook,' "'Sergeant Cuff darted softly out of my room "'and asked what was the matter. "'I answered nothing. "'Mr. Franklin, on the other side, "'pulled open the swing door "'and, beckoning me into the hall, "'inquired if I had seen anything of Rosanna Spearman. "'She has just passed me, sir, "'with a very disturbed face "'and in a very odd manner. "'I am afraid I am innocently "'the cause of that disturbance, Betteridge. "'You, sir. "'I can't explain it,' says Mr. Franklin.' But if the girl is concerned in the loss of the diamond, I do really believe she was on the point of confessing everything, to me, of all the people in the world, not two minutes since. Looking towards the swing door as he said those last words, I fancied I saw it opened a little from the inner side. Was there anybody listening? The door fell to before I could get to it. Looking through the moment after, I thought I saw the tails of Sergeant Cuff's respectable black coat disappearing round the corner of the passage. He knew, as well as I did, that he could expect no more help from me now that I had discovered the turn which his investigations were really taking. Under those circumstances, it was quite in his character to help himself and to do it by the underground way. Not feeling sure that I had really seen the sergeant, and not desiring to make needless mischief where, heaven knows, there is mischief enough going on already. I told Mr. Franklin that I thought one of the dogs had gotten to the house, and then begged him to describe what had happened between Rosanna and himself. 
"'Were you passing through the hall, sir?' I asked. "'Did you meet her accidentally when she spoke to you?' "'Mr. Franklin pointed to the billiard table. "'I was knocking the balls about,' he said, "'and trying to get this miserable business of the diamond out of my mind. "'I happened to look up, "'and there stood Rosanna Spearman at the side of me, like a ghost. "'Her stealing on me in that way was so strange "'that I hardly knew what to do at first. "'Seeing a very anxious expression in her face, "'I asked her if she wished to speak to me. "'She answered, "'Yes, if I dare.' Knowing what suspicion attached to her, I could only put one construction on such language as that. I confess it made me uncomfortable. I had no wish to invite the girl's confidence. At the same time, in the difficulties that now beset us, I could hardly feel justified in refusing to listen to her if she was really bent on speaking to me. It was an awkward position, and I dare say I got out of it awkwardly enough. I said to her, I don't quite understand you. Is there anything you want me to do? Mind, Betteridge, I didn't speak unkindly. The poor girl can't help being ugly. I felt that at the time. The cue was still in my hand, and I went on knocking the balls about to take off the awkwardness of the thing. As it turned out, I only made matters worse still. I'm afraid I mortified her without meaning it. She suddenly turned away. He looks at the billiard balls, I heard her say, "'anything rather than look at me.' "'Before I could stop her, she had left the hall. "'I'm not quite easy about it, Betteridge. "'Would you mind telling Rosanna that I meant no unkindness? "'I've been a little hard on her, perhaps, in my own thoughts. "'I've almost hoped that the loss of the diamond might be traced to her, "'not from any ill will to the poor girl, but—' "'He stopped there, and going back to the billiard table, "'began to knock the balls about once more.' After what had passed between the sergeant and me, I knew what it was that he left unspoken, as well as he knew it himself. Nothing but the tracing of the moonstone to our second housemaid could now raise Miss Rachel above the infamous suspicion that rested on her in the mind of Sergeant Cuff. It was no longer a question of quieting my young lady's nervous excitement. It was a question of proving her innocence— If Rosanna had done nothing to compromise herself, the hope which Mr. Franklin confessed to having felt would have been hard enough on her in all conscience. But this was not the case. She had pretended to be ill and had gone secretly to Frizzing Hall. She had been up all night, making something or destroying something in private, and she had been at the shivering sand that evening under circumstances which were highly suspicious, to say the least of them. For all these reasons, sorry as I was for Rosanna, I could not but think that Mr. Franklin's way of looking at the matter was neither unnatural nor unreasonable. In Mr. Franklin's position, I said a word to him to that effect. Yes, yes, he said in return, but there's just a chance, a very poor one certainly, that Rosanna's conduct may admit of some explanation which we don't see at present. I hate hurting a woman's feelings, Betteridge, "'Tell the poor creature what I told you to tell her, "'and if she wants to speak to me, "'I don't care whether I get into a scrape or not. "'Send her to me in the library.' "'With those kind words, he laid down the cue and left me. "'Inquiry at the servants' offices informed me "'that Rosanna had retired to her room. "'She had declined all offers of assistance with thanks "'and had only asked to be left to rest in quiet. "'Here, therefore, was an end of any confession on her part.' 
supposing she really had a confession to make for that night. I reported the result to Mr. Franklin, who thereupon left the library and went up to bed. I was putting the lights out and making the windows fast when Samuel came in with the news of the two guests who I had left in my room. The argument about the white moss rose had apparently come to an end at last. The gardener had gone home, and Sergeant Cuff was nowhere to be found in the lower regions of the house. I looked into my room. Quite true, nothing was to be discovered there but a couple of empty tumblers and a strong smell of hot grog. Had the sergeant gone of his own accord to the bedchamber that was prepared for him? I went upstairs to see. After reaching the second landing, I thought I heard a sound of quiet and regular breathing on my left-hand side. My left-hand side led to the corridor which communicated with Miss Rachel's room. I looked in, and there, coiled up on three chairs placed right across the passage, there, with a red handkerchief tied round his grizzled head and his respectable black coat rolled up for a pillow, lay and slept Sergeant Cuff. He woke instantly and quietly like a dog the moment I approached him. "'Good night, Mr. Betteridge,' he said, "'and mind, if you ever take to growing roses, "'the white moss rose is all the better for not "'being butted on the dog rose, "'whatever the gardener may say to the contrary. "'What are you doing here?' I asked. "'Why are you not in your proper bed?' "'I am not in my proper bed,' answered the sergeant, "'because I am one of the many people in this miserable world "'who can't earn their money honestly and easily at the same time.' There was a coincidence this evening between the period of Rosanna Spearman's return from the sands and the period when Miss Verinder stated her resolution to leave the house. Whatever Rosanna may have hidden, it's clear to my mind that your young lady couldn't go away until she knew that it was hidden. The two must have communicated privately once already tonight. If they try to communicate again when the house is quiet... I want to be in the way and stop it. Don't blame me for upsetting your sleeping arrangements, Mr. Betteridge. Blame the diamond. I wish to God the diamond had never found its way into this house, I broke out. Sergeant Cuff looked with a rueful face at the three chairs on which he had condemned himself to pass the night. So do I, he said gravely. Chapter 17 Nothing happened in the night, and, I am happy to add, no attempt at communication between Miss Rachel and Rosanna rewarded the vigilance of Sergeant Cuff. I had expected the sergeant to set off for Frizzing Hall the first thing in the morning. He waited about, however, as if he had something else to do first. I left him to his own devices, and going into the ground shortly after, met Mr. Franklin on his favorite walk by the shrubbery side. Before we had exchanged two words, the sergeant unexpectedly joined us. He made up to Mr. Franklin, who received him, I must own, haughtily enough. "'Have you anything to say to me?' was all the return he got for politely wishing Mr. Franklin good morning. "'I have something to say to you, sir,' answered the sergeant, "'on the subject of the inquiry I am conducting here. "'You detected the turn that inquiry was really taking yesterday. "'Naturally enough, in your position you are shocked and distressed.' "'Naturally enough, also, you visit your own angry sense of your own family scandal upon me. "'What do you want?' Mr. Franklin broke in, sharply enough. "'I want to remind you, sir, that I have at any rate thus far not been proved to be wrong. 
bearing that in mind, be pleased to remember at the same time that I am an officer of the law, acting here under the sanction of the mistress of the house. Under these circumstances, is it, or is it not, your duty as a good citizen to assist me with any special information which you may happen to possess? I possess no special information, says Mr. Franklin. Sergeant Cuff put that answer by him, as if no answer had been made. You may save my time, sir, from being wasted on an inquiry at a distance, he went on, if you choose to understand me and speak out. I don't understand you, answered Mr. Franklin, and I have nothing to say. One of the female servants, I won't mention names, spoke to you privately, sir, last night. Once more Mr. Franklin cut him short. Once more Mr. Franklin answered, I have nothing to say. Standing by in silence, I thought of the movement in the swing door on the previous evening, and of the coat-tails which I had seen disappearing down the passage. Sergeant Cuff had, no doubt, just heard enough, before I interrupted him, to make him suspect that Rosanna had relieved her mind by confessing something to Mr. Franklin Blake. This notion had barely struck me, when who should appear at the end of the shrubbery walk but Rosanna Spearman in her own proper person? She was followed by Penelope, who was evidently trying to make her retrace her steps to the house. Seeing that Mr. Franklin was not alone, Rosanna came to a standstill, evidently in great perplexity what to do next. Penelope waited behind her. Mr. Franklin saw the girls as soon as I saw them. The sergeant, with his devilish cunning, took on not to have noticed them at all. All this happened in an instant, before either Mr. Franklin or I could say a word. Sergeant Cuff struck in smoothly with an appearance of continuing the previous conversation. "'You needn't be afraid of harming the girl, sir,' he said to Mr. Franklin, speaking in a loud voice, so that Rosanna might hear him. "'On the contrary, I recommend you to honor me with your confidence, if you feel any interest in Rosanna Spearman.' Mr. Franklin instantly took on not to have noticed the girls either. He answered, speaking loudly on his side, "'I take no interest whatever in Rosanna Spearman.' I looked towards the end of the walk. All I saw at the distance was that Rosanna suddenly turned round the moment Mr. Franklin had spoken. Instead of resisting Penelope as she had done the moment before, she now let my daughter take her by the arm and lead her back to the house.' The breakfast bell rang as the two girls disappeared, and even Sergeant Cuff was now obliged to give it up as a bad job. He said to me quietly, I shall go to Frizzing Hall, Mr. Betteridge, and I shall be back before two. He went his way without a word more, and for some few hours we were well rid of him. You must make it right with Rosanna, Mr. Franklin said to me when we were alone. I seem to be fated to say or do something awkward before that unlucky girl. You must have seen yourself that Sergeant Cuff laid a trap for both of us. If he could confuse me or irritate her into breaking out, either she or I might have said something which would answer his purpose. On the spur of the moment, I saw no better way out of it than the way I took. It stopped the girl from saying anything, and it showed the sergeant that I saw through him, he was evidently listening, Betteridge, when I was speaking to you last night. He had done worse than listen, as I privately thought to myself. He had remembered my telling him that the girl was in love with Mr. Franklin, and he had calculated on that when he appealed to Mr. Franklin's interest in Rosanna in Rosanna's hearing. 
"'As to listening, sir,' I remarked, keeping the other point to myself, "'we shall all be rowing in the same boat "'if this sort of thing goes on much longer. "'Prying and peeping and listening "'are the natural occupations of people situated as we are. "'In another day or two, Mr. Franklin, "'we shall all be struck dumb together. "'For this reason, "'that we shall all be listening to surprise each other's secrets, "'and all know it. "'Excuse my breaking out, sir.' The hard mystery hanging over us in this house gets into my head like liquor and makes me wild. I won't forget what you told me. I'll take the first opportunity of making it right with Rosanna Spearman. You haven't said anything to her yet about last night, have you, Mr. Franklin asked? No, sir. Then say nothing now. I had better not invite the girl's confidence with the sergeant on the lookout to surprise us together. My conduct is not very consistent, Betteridge, is it? I see no way out of this business, which isn't dreadful to think of, unless the diamond is traced to Rosanna, and yet I can't and won't help Sergeant Cuff to find the girl out. Unreasonable enough, no doubt, but it was my state of mind as well. I thoroughly understood him. If you will, for once in your life, remember that you are mortal, perhaps you will thoroughly understand him too." The state of things, indoors and out, while Sergeant Cuff was on his way to Frizzing Hall, was briefly this. Miss Rachel waited for the time when the carriage was to take her to her aunt's, still obstinately shut up in her own room. My lady and Mr. Franklin breakfasted together. After breakfast, Mr. Franklin took one of his sudden resolutions and went out to quiet his mind by a long walk. I was the only person who saw him go, and he told me he should be back before the sergeant returned. The change in the weather, foreshadowed overnight, had come. Heavy rain had been followed soon after dawn by high wind. It was blowing fresh as the day got on. But though the clouds threatened more than once, the rain still held off. It was not a bad day for a walk, if you were young and strong, and could breast the great gusts of wind which came sweeping in from the sea. I attended my lady after breakfast and assisted her in the settlement of our household accounts. She only once alluded to the matter of the moonstone, and that was in the way of forbidding any present mention of it between us. "'Wait till that man comes back,' she said, meaning the sergeant. "'We must speak of it then. We are not obliged to speak of it now.' After leaving my mistress, I found Penelope waiting for me in my room, "'I wish, Father, you would come and speak to Rosanna,' she said. "'I am very uneasy about her.' "'I suspected what was the matter readily enough, "'but it is a maxim of mine that men are bound to improve women, if they can. "'When a woman wants me to do anything, my daughter or not, it doesn't matter, "'I always insist on knowing why. "'The oftener you make them rummage their own minds for a reason, "'the more manageable you will find them in all the relations of life.' It isn't their fault that they act first and think afterwards it's the fault of the fools who humor them. Penelope's reason why, on this occasion, may be given in her own words. I am afraid, father, she said, Mr. Franklin has hurt Rosanna cruelly without intending it. What took Rosanna into the shrubbery walk, I asked. Her own madness, says Penelope. I can call it nothing else. She was bent on speaking to Mr. Franklin this morning, "'Come what might of it. "'I did my best to stop her. "'You saw that. "'If I could only have got her away "'before she heard those dreadful words. "'There, there,' I said. "'Don't lose your head. "'I can't call to mind that anything happened "'to alarm Rosanna.' 
nothing to alarm her father, but Mr. Franklin said he took no interest whatever in her, and, oh, he said it in such a cruel voice. He said it to stop the sergeant's mouth, I answered. I told her that, says Penelope, but you see, father, though Mr. Franklin isn't to blame, he's been mortifying and disappointing her for weeks and weeks past, and now this comes on the top of it all. She has no right, of course, to expect him to take any interest in her. It's quite monstrous that she should forget herself and her station in that way. But she seems to have lost pride and proper feeling and everything. She frightened me, father, when Mr. Franklin said those words. They seemed to turn her into stone. A sudden quiet came over her, and she has gone about her work ever since like a woman in a dream. I began to feel a little uneasy. There was something in the way Penelope put it which silenced my superior sense. I called to mind, now my thoughts were directed that way, what had passed between Mr. Franklin and Rosanna overnight. She looked cut to the heart on that occasion, and now, as ill luck would have it, she had been unavoidably stung again, poor soul, on the tender place. Sad, sad, all the more sad, because the girl had no reason to justify her, and no right to feel it. I had promised Mr. Franklin to speak to Rosanna, and this seemed the fittest time for keeping my word. We found the girl sweeping the corridor outside the bedrooms, pale and composed and neat as ever in her modest print dress. I noticed a curious dimness and dullness in her eyes, not as if she had been crying, but as she had been looking at something too long. Possibly it was a misty something raised by her own thoughts. There was certainly no object about her to look at, which she had not seen already hundreds on hundreds of times. "'Cheer up, Rosanna,' I said. "'You mustn't fret over your own fancies. "'I've got something to say to you from Mr. Franklin.' "'I thereupon put the matter in the right view before her, "'in the friendliest and most comforting words I could find. "'My principles, in regard to the other sex, "'are, as you may have noticed, very severe, "'but somehow or other, when I come face to face with the women, "'my practice, I own, is not conformable.' Mr. Franklin is very kind and considerate, pleased to thank him. That was all the answer she made me. My daughter had already noticed that Rosanna went about her work like a woman in a dream. I now added to this observation that she also listened and spoke like a woman in a dream. I doubted if her mind was in a fit condition to take in what I had said to her. "'Are you quite sure, Rosanna, that you understand me?' I asked. "'Quite sure.' She echoed me, not like a living woman, but like a creature moved by machinery. She went on sweeping all the time. I took away the broom as gently and as kindly as I could. "'Come, come, my girl,' I said. "'This is not like yourself. You've got something on your mind. I'm your friend, and I'll stand your friend, even if you've done wrong. Make a clean breast of it, Rosanna. Make a clean breast of it.' The time had been when my speaking to her in that way would have brought the tears into her eyes. I could see no change in them now. Yes, she said, I'll make a clean breast of it. To my lady, I asked. No. To Mr. Franklin? Yes, to Mr. Franklin. I hardly knew what to say to that. She was in no condition to understand the caution against speaking to him in private, which Mr. Franklin had directed me to give her. Feeling my way, little by little, I only told her Mr. Franklin had gone out for a walk. "'It doesn't matter,' she answered. 
I shan't trouble Mr. Franklin today. Why not speak to my lady, I said. The way to relieve your mind is to speak to the merciful and Christian mistress who has always been kind to you. She looked at me for a moment with a grave and steady attention, as if she was fixing what I said in her mind. Then she took the broom out of my hands and moved off with it slowly a little way down the corridor. No, she said, going on with her sweeping and speaking to herself, I know a better way of relieving my mind than that. What is it? Please to let me go on with my work. Penelope followed her and offered to help her. She answered, No, I want to do my work. Thank you, Penelope. She looked round at me. Thank you, Mr. Betteridge. There was no moving her. There was nothing more to be said. I signed to Penelope to come away with me. We left her, as we'd found her, sweeping the corridor like a woman in a dream. This is a matter for the doctor to look into, I said. It's beyond me. My daughter reminded me of Mr. Candy's illness, owing, as you may remember, to the chill he had caught on the night of the dinner party. His assistant, a certain Mr. Ezra Jennings, was at our disposal, to be sure, but nobody knew much about him in our parts. He had been engaged by Mr. Candy under rather peculiar circumstances, and right or wrong, we none of us liked him or trusted him. There were other doctors at Frizzing Hall, but they were strangers to our house, and Penelope doubted, in Rosanna's present state, whether strangers might not do her more harm than good. I thought of speaking to my lady, but remembering the heavy weight of anxiety, which she already had on her mind, I hesitated to add to all the other vexations this new trouble. Still, there was a necessity for doing something. The girl's state was, to my thinking, downright alarming, and my mistress ought to be informed of it. Unwilling enough, I went to her sitting-room. No one was there. My lady was shut up with Miss Rachel. It was impossible for me to see her till she came out again. I waited in vain till the clock on the front staircase struck the quarter to two. Five minutes afterwards, I heard my name called from the drive outside the house. I knew the voice directly. Sergeant Cuff had returned from Frizzing Hall. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.